Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Hey everyone, welcome back. Women activists have had a tremendous impact on our nation's history. From the women demanding equality at Seneca Falls to the activists fighting for the passage of the ERA, women have solidly placed their footprint on the American story while flexing their activist arm. So this week, I thought I would talk about one of the earliest examples of women in activism, Mary Dyer. Dyer would become known as one of the Boston martyrs due to her death for challenging the local government. So what exactly happened to Mary? What were the Boston martyrs? Well, have a seat, grab your coffee, and let us begin. One of the first female activists known to colonial America, Mary Dyer, born Mary Barrett in Europe in 1611, was originally a Puritan in faith who wanted to reform the Anglican Church. She garnered attention and historical significance due to her devout Quaker beliefs and her very public death at the hands of the local government becoming a literal martyr to her cause. While obscured from everyday history, Dyer is an early example of women in activism and the extent to which women will go to to make their voices heard. While living in England, Mary hoped to reform her local church, but was unable to garner much support within her community and, feeling pressured to cease her reform efforts, left to the New World with her husband, William Dyer, landing in Massachusetts Bay Colony of Boston in 1635. Upon her arrival, she joined the Church of Boston and was immediately swept up into the brewing antinomian controversy, which plagued the colony from 1636 to 1638. The controversy was led by another opinionated and outspoken female, Anne Hutchinson, and was a religious and political conflict sparked in part due to opposing beliefs in the proper form of practicing one's faith. Hutchinson espoused the belief that an individual was saved by God from the moment they believed in his existence. And on the other hand, Puritans believed the soul could only be saved by pious or religious acts. And Puritans were in the majority and held large political power within the colony. The Puritans considered the teachings of Hutchinson to be heresy and that she and her followers were acting against God. Since they controlled much of the political power in the colonies, Puritans enacted laws forbidding these theological discussions in an ill-fated attempt to diminish their spread. A little foreshadowing here. Colonial Boston was primarily a theocratic government or a government made up of mostly clergy and heavily influenced by the church. Events like this may have, in some small part, influenced the Founding Fathers' decision when building the Constitution, but we'll get into that in a later episode. Dyer, who was a staunch supporter of Hutchinson, attended these theological discussions, regularly held in Hutchinson's living room, and was known to have massive influence over the colony's women. Tensions continued to mount and would reach such a fever pitch the colony was ordered to take a day of fasting to repent and chillax a little bit. But of course, no day of fasting would be complete without church services, and so sermons were provided in both the morning and the afternoon. While the morning sermon espoused the Puritans' beliefs and were welcomed, the afternoon address was, well, not so well received. The author of the afternoon sermon, John Wheelwright, was made to appear in court shortly after the day of fasting to defend his sermon. Lacking any true political power, Wheelwright was found guilty of contempt and sedition for purposely increasing the tensions within the colony. 
and though he lacked any true political power, Wheelwright was not alone in his defense. Numerous members of the Boston church signed a petition in support of Wheelwright, including Mary's husband, William. Upon Wheelwright's conviction, those who signed the petition of support were given two options, either recant their support of Wheelwright and remain within the colony, or be disenfranchised, losing the right to participate in the voting process, and forced to give up their guns and ammunition. William remained loyal to Wheelwright, and instead of staying within the borders of the colony with no rights to vote or hold arms, he left the colony for Rhode Island. Up until this point, Mary had managed to pretty much stay under the radar of the watchful Puritans, coming into view only after the trial and excommunication of Anne Hutchinson. Hutchinson, who was known as charismatic and devout in her beliefs, was brought before the Puritan magistrates and told to recant her faith or face expulsion from the colony. After sitting with two ministers for a week, Hutchinson would issue a mild recantation for some of the charges levied, but refused to fully admit her beliefs were incorrect or amoral and was banished from the colony in 1638. After her trial, Hutchinson walked out with Mary Dyer at her side. Speculation as to who the unknown supporter was ran rampant, with whispers of Dyer having had a monstrous birth. The truth was, Dyer had, in fact, given birth to a stillborn with severe physical deformities months prior. Knowing the potential reaction to the news, she arranged a secret burial to remain anonymous. Because Puritans consistently looked for signs from God about someone's piety, having a deformed child would be interpreted as confirmation that Mary's beliefs was blasphemy and she a heretic. In an especially cruel act of vengeance, the magistrates ordered the exhumation of the infant to prove the defects and further solidify Mary as a dissident. This seems a little excessive, if you ask me. So, knowing she would quickly be unwelcome and driven out of the colony anyway, Dyer followed Hutchinson to Rhode Island after her trial. She eventually moved back to England, where she lived from 1652 to 1657. It's during her residence in England that she became a member of the Society of Friends, better known as Quakers. Founded in 1647 by George Fox, Quakers did not believe in baptism or an ordained ministry and demanded the separation of church and state. Holla! Women were given equal footing to men, something the Puritans were vastly opposed to. Little else is known of Dyer's time in England. However, upon her return to Boston in 1657, Dyer had a clear mission and purpose, performing missionary work on behalf of the Society of Friends and spreading their gospel. Being a woman in colonial Boston conducting sermons was bad enough. To give sermons that went against the established faith? Well, that was just bad for business. And seeing the number of Quakers growing within the colonies, Puritans freaked out a little and passed successive laws against espousing the Quaker beliefs with punishments including lashing, fines, mutilation, and banishment, going so far as to pass a law listing capital punishment in October of 1658. So it's of no surprise that upon her arrival and near-immediate identification as a Quaker, Dyer was arrested and imprisoned. To obtain her release, her husband signed an affidavit certifying Mary would leave the colony and would abstain from speaking to any of the members upon her departure. And while Dyer made good on her promise to leave the colony and not talk to anybody, her preaching and missionary work did not end. She was arrested again in New Haven, Connecticut in 1658 for espousing heretical ideas and speaking against God. And, and in hearing of fellow Quakers being detained for espousing their beliefs, Mary returned to Boston and was jailed in October of 1659. She, along with her two fellow Quakers, Marmaduke Stevenson and William Robinson, were brought to the magistrates to plead their case on October 19, 1659. Look, this is a pretty sad story, I know that. But I have to interject here and say, 
How awesome is the name Marmaduke? It's a thing of beauty, am I right? All right, getting back to the story. Unsuccessful in convincing the magistrates that there should be no laws against practicing the faith one chooses, Dyer, Stevenson, and Robinson were sentenced to death by hanging and given an execution date of October 27, 1659. In a truly cruel form of punishment, those convicted were forced to walk to their death. Hanging was the choice of the time, and the gallows was set up using a large elm tree on what was known as Boston Neck, currently the intersection of West Dedham and Washington Streets. Dyer was forced to stand by and watch as both her fellow Quaker brethren were hung from the massive elm, she being the last in line to be forced to climb to her death. Dyer ascended the ladder and faced the crowd, only to be granted a last-minute reprieve, thanks to a proclamation submitted on her behalf by her son. Historians argue this last-minute reprieve may have been pre-orchestrated. Killing a woman was pretty excessive, and the magistrates were worried about the community's reaction and feared she'd be made into a martyr, only further enhancing her cause. The hope was the brush with death would be enough to scare Dyer off and convince her to stay out of the Boston colony. Reaction to the hangings went the way the magistrates feared, with the two Quaker men being lauded as heroes to the cause. To quell this sentiment, the magistrates issued notice to England in an attempt to justify their actions and diminish the martyrdom of those killed. This attempt at manipulating public sentiment appears to have pissed Dyer off, who set upon returning to Boston to force a change in policy or force them to hang a woman. She arrived back in Boston on May 21, 1660, and was immediately arrested. During her trial, Dyer was clear on her intent, saying, quote, I came in obedience to the will of God, the last general court, desiring you to repeal your unrighteous laws of banishment on pain of death. And that same is my work now. An earnest request, although I told you that if you refuse to repeal them, the Lord would send others of his servants to witness against them. End quote. Basically, Dyer threw down the challenge. You either change your laws or hang me. Talk about dropping the mic. Again, Dyer was found guilty and issued the punishment of death by hanging. Her husband tried unsuccessfully to submit a letter requesting her freedom. And so, on June 1st, 1660, Dyer walked to the Boston Neck and once again was forced to climb the gallows. She was given one final chance to repent for her sins and spare her own life. However, she refused, being fully prepared to die for her cause. She was put to death by hanging shortly after 9 a.m. Dyer's death was controversial and spread throughout the colonies. However, it would take a petition filed by the English Quaker activist Edward Burrow before the king ordered the hangings to cease. Mary Dyer would be one of four individuals put to death over their religious belief, the fourth and final being William Ledra in March of 1661. These four individuals would become known as the Boston Martyrs. The proclamation to cease hangings was signed on September 9, 1661, and ordered the local magistrates to ship offenders to England to face English law. The hangings stopped, but Puritans continued to find ways to make the lives of those who believe differently less than comfortable. And so Mary Dyer remains an important example of female activism, knowingly placing her life on the line, believing her death would help enable change to policy and influence a change in her government. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together. Mm-hmm.